Hello, this podcast features historian John Alexander speaking from his store, Books on the Square, at 153 East Jackson Street, Burden, Illinois, which he co-owns with his wife, Jeannie. They have another store at 427 East Washington Street, Springfield, Illinois. Alexander tells the story of the 1898 Battle at Burden and the connection to Mother Jones. Check out booksonthesquare.com. My name is John Alexander. Uh, I'm a longtime resident of Verdon, Illinois. I, uh, my dad had a shoe store in this building we're standing in. It opened in 1948, and that was the year I entered the first grade here in Verdon. And I graduated from high school here in 1960, did my college work up at Monmouth College for a bachelor's, and uh, went to graduate school over at the University of Illinois at Champaign. Long time ago, I got interested in Verdon history. I remember well the Verdon Centennial of 1952 and a a big community play production was done out on the high school football field and one of the uh, events of Verdon history highlighted in that community play was the Verdon Mine Riot of 1898 and that sparked my interest in knowing more about the so-called Mine Riot and I spent a lifetime learning about it, reading about it, and I've accumulated all kinds of information and I'm glad to share some of that with you folks here uh, today. I will say at the get-go, Mother Jones is of great interest. Uh, She was not at the Verdant Mine Battle, but in spirit I believe she was. And I think there were a lot of people inspired by Mother Jones who made this beautiful monument we have here in Verdon possible. But first, on the uh, the first thing I learned about the mine riot, I learned there were a lot of uh, mistakes and myths surrounding the mine battle. If you can imagine growing up in a little town in central Illinois, you can imagine how stories would get stretched and changed over some 50 and now 100 or more years. And the first thing I learned was that the uh, riot was not really a riot. It was it was more of a battle. I'm of the opinion that uh, riots are unplanned events, spontaneous events, maybe unexpected events. You don't plan a riot. Uh, riots just kind of pop up and occur. Uh, being a sports fan, I can often think of uh, near riots or read about them at soccer games in, in Europe or maybe at football games <laughs> in uh, Illinois high schools a riot may occur but th- this mine riot was not a riot as we'll see and I learned it was it was a battle. Okay let's start at the beginning though uh, what was it about? Why did it occur? Well it, it stems out of or grows out of the uh, great Uh, strike, coal strike of the late 1890s. Remember that the UMWA traces back to about 1892-93 and they were a very young organization at the time of the the mine battle. Um, As is the case in so many things, uh, the issues between labor and management might be thought 
to be one thing or another, but generally I've learned it's it's about money. And if you don't think it was about money, just look a little look a little harder. And I'm going to use a cheat sheet here, but in 1883, miners uh, were paid 80 cents for bringing to the surface about 300 feet up uh, from the seam here below us in Verdon, which is about seven feet thick. Uh, they were paid 80 cents a ton. By 1897, their pay had dropped from 80 cents a ton down to 50 cents a ton. And in 1898, on the eve of the Verdon mine battle, the Verdon Chicago, Chicago Verdon Coal Company was paying uh, just a little over 30 cents a ton. So imagine your wages being cut by uh, almost 250 percent. I, I, I just, it just boggles my mind, you know. Uh, I told a group of school teachers once who averaged $50,000 a year in pay, let's say, as a group, imagine if your pay was cut from 50000 in 14 years down to 17,000. Uh, do you think you might be mad? Madder than hell, maybe. <laughs> it's just unbelievable that coal miners were getting hit that hard. Remember, too, they had deplorable working conditions, and each year Illinois was losing about 80 to 100 coal miners killed at work. Killed by rock falls was probably the major cause of death. So, by 1897, the UMWA, a new union on the national scene, took it upon themselves to try to get the miners' uh, pay bumped back up, if not to 80 cents, at least to maybe 50 cents, which they asked for, as well as an eight-hour day. Now, eventually they settled on, uh, in January of 1898, and effective April 1, 1898, they won the eight-hour eight day issue. So people looking back at this mine strike, a national strike in the 1890s, generally think, oh, that's the year we got the uh, eight-hour day. And that was all well and good, but I think uh, people are overlooking the hourly, uh, not the hourly wage, the wage uh, per ton. In 1898, at the time of this great coal strike, there were 800 coal mines in Illinois. Uh, so in a county like Macoupin County, uh, our average, uh, countywide average in Illinois would be about eight mines per county. Uh, there were more than that in Macoupin County, I can tell you that. There were three in Verdon, uh, several in Gillespie, uh, Mount Olive, scattered all over the county, Carlinville, Girard. The result of the national strike in 1898 was 776 of these 800 coal mines in Illinois accepted a new wage uh, per ton that ra raised their pay from a little over 30 cents per ton to a flat 40 cents per ton. 24 mines, in other words, in Illinois, did not become a party to this agreement. One of those 24 was the Chicago Verdon Coal Company here in this town, which in 1897 had produced more tons of coal than any other mine in Illinois. So this was, this was a big one. Here you had the largest coal mine in the state saying, you guys may 
pay these fellows 40 cents a ton, but we're staying at 32. So they had on April 1st when every other mine, nearly every other mine in Illinois went back to work, they began a lockout here in Verdon of the coal miners. The coal miners were ready to go back to work for 40 cents a ton, but the company uh, would not uh, become a party to the agreement and lock them out. Now, a lot of people say it was uh, the miners were on strike. Well, that's true in part. They were on strike until April 1st, but after April 1st, they were ready and willing to go back to work, wanted to go back to work. Their families were in great pain because they had been out of work so long, but the coal company decided, uh, you may want to come back to work, uh, you may be willing, but we're not. We're locking the gates, and that's what they did. The second little myth I, I, I learned then was that the miners were not on strike at the time of the mine battle. They were locked out. Um, and I think that's uh, important uh, to, to understand. And a lot of people get that wrong, including the union historians on, the, on this little, um, little battle. Um, from April 1st to October 12th, the day of the, the battle, uh, tensions mounted and both sides prepared for the worst. Uh, the mine attempted to convince the governor that the National Guard should be used to help import uh, scab replacements for the uh, locked out miners. The governor at the time, uh, John Tanner, who was from Southern Illinois and a Republican, uh, reacted in a very unrepublican way. He, he decided with the miners. He said, well, we, I, I'm not gonna be party to bringing in uh, coal miners from out of state to take the jobs of Illinois miners. And that basically set the company off in the direction that, well, we'll have to fend for ourselves. We'll hire armed guards. And that they did from the Thiel, uh, or Teal, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, T-H-I-E-L, uh, detective agency in St. Louis. So he, uh, the manager of the uh, coal mine, uh, fellow by the name of Lukens, who's kind of the villain in the story for me, set out to hire armed guards and cops and soldiers returning from the war in uh, Cuba. Uh, remember this was the time, almost simultaneously, the time of Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. And some of the men who fought in Cuba wound up here uh, as armed guards uh, to the Chicago Verdon Coal Company. Well, the miners uh, caught wind of uh, the idea that some uh, that a trainload of black coal miners uh, might be headed up this way from Alabama, where they were uh, recruited to take the jobs of the locked-out miners in Verdun. But there's a possibility uh, in Alabama, as many people know, that they were using convict uh, labor. Uh, rightly or wrongly uh, convicted black coal miners instead of being sentenced to prison were sentenced to being coal miners. 
uh, and uh, used uh, for profit uh, by the, the state of Alabama and perhaps other states as well. And I think really these guys had to be duped into believing that, uh, you know, no problem, come on up to Verdun, nice little community in central Illinois. Uh, you'll be greeted by the coal company and you'll make a little more than you're making in Alabama now. But they offered them, interestingly enough, less than they did the uh, last pay for the for the Verdon miners, which was about 32, 33 cents a ton. They offered the scabs 29, 28.29 cents a ton to come up here into a heated situation about which they knew very, very little. The local unions in the area uh, were allies of the Verdon miners from the beginning and men came from miles around from every town probably in 30 miles uh, sent men over here. Eventually the miners built up a small army of men of about 2,000 men and most of them as you can imagine were armed and many of them with just their own shotguns. So on the one side we have a company that's building a stockade around the mine with uh, towers for snipers uh, and on the other side we have 2,000 mostly armed miners armed with uh, shotguns and they are literally facing off the mine on one side of the railroad track in the north end of Verdun and a big field on the opposite side of the track filled with uh, different camps of the local union men armed and drilling and ready to ready to fight for their jobs and fight for their brothers. Um, the out-of-towners had basically gone back to work but they were willing to come and uh, support their union brothers in Verdun. As the date came closer uh, the miners developed some contacts along this route to let them know when this train might arrive. And it's believed that uh, as this train uh, came through St. Louis on the way up to Verdun on what I still call the old Chicago and Alton route, um, that uh, word was spread by telegraph that the mine and the scabs, the scab replacement workers were on their way. I've heard stories from many old timers that when that train of six cars uh, carrying about 150 scabs and unfortunately their wives and in some cases their kids approached Verdun, uh, the guards on board pulled down the shutters there on the windows and told everybody to hit the deck and that was because they knew that there was probably gunfire about to begin and sure enough as the train came into Verdun from the south up through uh, Brighton and Shipman and Carlinville and Girard uh, um, the, the, the men in town were like we said armed and prepared and waiting for action. As that train got to the middle of town, not too far from where we're standing here today, the firing began and the first man killed was a uh, detective, railroad detective, hired by the Chicago and Alton. Now my thought is he was probably shot and killed uh, because he, uh, his job that day was to throw the switch 
and send the train off on a spur directly to the mine site that ran parallel to the main track. It would be pretty odd to think that somehow you would pick off the perfect man. No one knows who killed uh, this gentleman, but he became the first casualty uh, at, the, at the scene. The train pulled forward about a half mile and parked itself right across from uh, the mine. And at that point, uh, everything broke loose. Uh, the guards were firing at the miners in the field, and vice versa, the miners were firing back at the stockade. There were 12 men killed here at Verdun. Uh, I should say killed or fatally wounded, who died maybe a day or two days later in some cases. But counting the uh, railroad detective, there, there were 13 people killed here in a gunfight that lasted about 15 minutes. Now that's, that's pretty serious business. If you, if you think about Illinois history, uh, a gunfight that kills 13 people, that surpassed the OK Corral, among many other uh, gunfights that we probably know more about. Eight of those men killed were uh, miners, members of the UMWA. Oddly enough, no one from Verdun was killed at the Verdun mine battle. Pretty hard to believe, although there was a company store man who was nearly beaten to death and left for dead across the street from us in the city park. But miraculously, he survived a few uh, wounds and a, a terrible uh, beating. Other four people killed were uh, company guards hired just for uh, an ugly event just like this. A Chicago cop, another man from Indianapolis, uh, a couple others. Uh, you can imagine uh, the chaos that must have been uh, in Verdun if uh, 2,000 armed men on one side and 100 well-armed men on the other side with repeating rifles firing from protected positions, uh, the, the havoc they could uh, wreak in, in just a few minutes. The eight miners killed uh, were from Mount Olive, uh, Sorrento, Edwardsville, Taylorville, Springfield, and Girard. I believe I have that right. The dead miners and the fatally wounded miners were taken to a, a home on the east side of Verdun that uh, became kind of a, an emergency hospital. It was located in the O'Neill House. When the governor caught wind of what, what had happened at Verdun, he was urged to uh, come down and bring the National Guard and support the company once again, and he refused once again. The Union invited him down, of course, to um, uh, break up the fight and prevent uh, an attempt to land scab workers here in Verdun. Uh, the train, incidentally, uh, the engineer of the train, a guy named Burt Kiger from Bloomington, Illinois, was also wounded and pulled the train forward and went up uh, through uh, beyond Springfield to almost and Lincoln and uh, stopped in a little town, uh, Atlanta, Illinois. That's how far he wanted to get away from uh, this situation here. Kiger uh, survived. The end result was 
the governor then uh, sent a National Guard contingent down from Springfield, troops straight back from the war in, in Cuba. And they uh, were under or orders to disarm uh, everybody in the community, close the taverns, and declare martial law. So they did all of those things. They, they disarmed uh, the guards, the miners, and told uh, the miners to leave the community. Okay, so after this 15 minutes, there were several men dead, several men dying, and, and many more wounded, at least another 30 to 50 men, according to accounts in all the newspapers that covered this were wounded uh, as well. Uh, speaking of newspaper accounts, uh, October 13, 1898, the day after the mine battle, uh, this was a headline story not only in Illinois but nationally. Uh, papers all over the country featured this story on their front pages. As well, you can imagine, uh, if an event like this occurred today anywhere in the United States, you can imagine it would be front page news nationally. And CNN would probably be there and Pronto as well as other uh, television networks as well. Several of the miners were taken to hospitals in Springfield, but the main action after the mine in terms of uh, calming the community was the presence of the uh, Illinois National Guard. I have photos of uh, the camp they set up across the street in the town park, the city park. Uh, they literally were here in Verdon for not days but several weeks uh, to maintain uh, the peace. Uh, there were all kinds of uh, questions about who was at fault, as you can imagine, and who, who should be charged with uh, murder on the one hand or whatever on the other hand. A county uh, grand jury took a look at uh, the situation and indicted several people. Uh, a few minors were indicted uh, for the beating and uh, near kicking to death of Jacob Eister, who ran the company store which is just right two doors uh, west of me here. Eister, incidentally, we might talk about this, uh, uh, was mistaken. People from out of town thought he was uh, Lukens, the uh, villain in the story. Because they thought he was Lukens, they wanted to beat the poor guy to death. He survived somehow. I've never been able to track down on uh, what, what happened to uh, Eister. No doubt he left the community and uh, didn't show his face again as far as I know. Oddly enough, Lukens, incidentally, is buried in Verdon uh, at our city cemetery. So after the, uh, after the mine battle, uh, martial law takes over and believe it or not, within about a month or six weeks, Beyond the mine battle, the, the company caved in and became a partner in the contract. So the men got their 40 cents an hour. Uh, it was hard won, uh, but they, they got it uh, thanks to the union uh, standing together and uh, fighting in their behalf. I might talk about some of the uh, results of the Verdon mine battle here before we take a look at the monument. Um, the first thing I think that's uh, clearly interesting uh, is that before the mine battle, only a small minority of Illinois coal miners belonged to the United Mine Workers of America. But after the mine battle, when uh, 
miners in Illinois and those 800 mines we talked about saw the result that the, the Union stood together and fought and won. At that point, membership in the UMWA began to grow, grow where shortly thereafter, shortly after Verdun, uh, within a few years, uh, the great majority of all miners in Illinois, not a minority, the majority belonged to the UMWA. They were quite proud of what they had accomplished here at Verdun. I have a little badge uh, that shows, uh, includes the words victory at Verdun that the UMWA put out and you can bet that uh, there were a lot of central Illinois miners who wore that very proudly. So the unions growth was one of the big end results. Uh, another uh, minor uh, result was that October 12th, which is Columbus Day, if you remember, um, was tagged uh, Verdon Day uh, in local the local mines around here for many years, and uh, it was a, a paid holiday for the UMWA uh, membership. That day, incidentally, has kind of developed over the years now into, some would call it Miner's Day, and others might call it Mother Jones Day, because every uh, October 12th, on a, a weekend close to October 12th, uh, there's a Mother Jones dinner in Springfield and a uh, ceremony at Mount Olive at the Miner's Cemetery. But that traces back to uh, the Verdon Mine Battle, that date. A third uh, a third result of the Verdon Mine Battle was the creation of a very historic cemetery here in Macoupin County at Mount Olive. The Miners Cemetery directly traces to the Verdon Mine Battle. Uh, Mount Olive uh, had lost four miners here at the battle and when those uh, young men were buried at a private cemetery in uh, Mount Olive the board eventually rejected the idea of having uh, buried them and uh, didn't want the UMWA uh, celebrating uh, Miner's Day in a private cemetery. Disinterred those men and left their bodies uh, to the Union to uh, bury at what became the Union Miner's Cemetery, created specifically to bury these four men uh, killed in Verdun. I can tell you growing up in a small town that a lot of people were embarrassed about these events. A lady from Verdun who uh, was a descendant of the mayor of Verdun at the time told me that uh, this was a dark day in our history and wondered why I even uh, spent time trying to research it and learn more about it. She was kind of uh, unhappy about that. And I can imagine there were some people in Mount Olive who might have been uh, embarrassed about the fact that four young men from their community were uh, shot and killed in, in Verdun. We know people and that's, they don't always uh, agree on uh, how events are interpreted. Last but not least on the results, uh, Mother Jones, who was here in spirit and is clearly depicted on our mine battle uh, monument in the park, asked to be buried uh, alongside, quote, the heroes of Verdun. And that meant she wanted to be buried in Mount Olive, uh, the Mount Olive Miners Cemetery. She even sent paperwork uh, to Macoupin County uh, indicating that. I've seen the paperwork in Carlinville years ago. So when Mother Jones finally passed at uh, 
had 100 years. Some said she was 93. She claimed she was 100, one of the few people I've ever known who claimed she was older than what she really was. But when she was buried at Mount Olive uh, with thousands of miners uh, in attendance at her funeral, uh, she uh, did get her wish. She was buried next to the heroes of Verdun. And I maintain, uh, kind of in closing here, at this, or summing up at, at this point, that she wanted to be buried next to those eight men who were killed in action here in Verdun. I think those were the men she most admired were the, those men who lost their lives here that day in, in a fight for their jobs in a fight for their union, and in a fight for their families who were starving because they couldn't continue to be locked out of work month after month after month. So Mother Jones is buried here. She's a national icon, as we know, in labor history. And it's kind of amazing that she uh, got buried out here in a small town, in a small county out here in the Midwest. But she, she admired these eight men so much uh, and the Union men she gave her life to uh, that she wanted to be buried at their side and she definitely got her wish. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was brought to you by Jace Media Service and the Redneck Historian for the Friends of Mother Jones Museum and Union Miner Cemetery both located in Mount Olive, Illinois. For more information on Mother Jones, see Mother Jones Museum, Mount Olive, dot org.